Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. The beginning of 2021 has been defined by a deadly pandemic, precarious geopolitical relations, a sharply contracting economy and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season, we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host, Anirudh Burman, and this week we are diving deep into the topic of urban governance and COVID-19 in India. But before we start, we at Carnegie India would like to wish the very best of health and good luck to all of you in these tough times. The second wave of COVID-19 in India has overwhelmed India's governance institutions. Public authorities from the federal to the local level are trying their best to respond to the tragedy of COVID-19 unfolding every day. India's large, densely populated cities have been particularly hard hit, and now the infection is rapidly making its way to smaller towns and rural areas. The scale of human loss and suffering throughout the country has been unparalleled in independent India's history. Episodes like this have long-term negative effects on the prospects of the poor. When the national lockdown was imposed last year, millions of migrant workers left the cities they worked in and undertook arduous journeys back home. That episode and the devastation caused by this more viral in second wave of COVID-19 leads us to think deeply about the nature of our urban governance systems. India has been urbanizing rapidly and its cities are major engines of its economic growth. And yet, India's urban governance institutions have historically failed to cope with the pressures of urbanization. Indian cities have some of the largest slums in the world while also having some of the most expensive housing. Our cities have historically underperformed in delivering quality infrastructure like public transport to its residents. They have also underdelivered basic services like safety, health, and sanitation. While improvements have taken place gradually, COVID-19 has exposed gaping holes in the ability of our cities to deal with emergencies like this pandemic in a resilient and capable manner. Other cities like Hong Kong that are even more densely populated have coped with the pandemic better than Indian cities. Therefore, there is a need to understand how our local governance systems can actually cope with the current challenge in a more effective way and to make sure that our cities are more resilient in the future. Today, to discuss the importance of urban governance in times like this, we have with us Srikanth Vishwanathan. Srikanth is the Chief Executive Officer of Janagraha Center for Citizenship and Democracy. Janagraha is a Bengaluru-based non-profit organization working with the mission of transforming the quality of life in India's cities and towns. Janagraha works with citizens to catalyze active citizenship in city neighborhoods and with governments to institute reforms to city governance. Srikanth, welcome to Interpreting India. I'm glad to have you here. Hi, Anirudh. Pleasure to be here with you. Uh, so I'd like to start by asking you about how urban local bodies in our cities and towns are coping with the pandemic right now. To uh, Just to set some context to this question, last year, the central government ran a pretty centralized system for managing the lockdown. Uh, this time, on the one hand, the impact of the second wave of COVID is much, much worse, and the healthcare infrastructure throughout the country is stretched. At the same time, states have been given more autonomy in handling the pandemic within their borders, and cities have been encouraged to impose limited lockdowns and respond to the local situation more organically. So I wanted to ask you if city governments were actually equipped to handle this increased responsibility, 
and what are some of the mechanisms through which they have been coping with the second wave of covid-19 much as i would like to say something contrary anirudh i'm afraid our municipalities or urban local bodies as they are known within government circles are really struggling they are really struggling to cope with the pandemic and there are two three reasons for it what i have recently gathered from public health experts is that urban health in india is quite nascent as far as the public sector is concerned which i found to be quite uh, alarming to say the least uh, secondly the degree of decentralization of functions and powers from the state governments to municipalities has been quite low and health has not been one of the functions which is by and large been devolved which essentially means municipalities in india are by and large not involved in primary healthcare or in pandemic management the manner that they should have been equipped the third and final point i'd like to make is even setting aside these two issues our municipalities generally have weak capacities in terms of finances in terms of number of people in terms of their skills and competencies and also enabling infrastructure whether digital or physical so all of these fault lines unfortunately have been exposed and have come to kind of bite us at a very bad time right uh, so when you say health care responsibilities have not been devolved to urban local bodies do you have any insights on why that's the case because traditionally a lot of urban governance reforms in india have actually taken place due to events like epidemics like the like the plague that hit bombay and uh, other similar incidents that have actually affected cities one would imagine that a lot of responsibilities with regard to sanitation healthcare especially epidemics would actually fall on urban local bodies any any idea why that's not happened in a larger way it's a very pertinent and fundamental question that you're raising anirudh the fact of the matter is public health is very much a part of the 18 functions which are listed in schedule 12 to the constitution and therefore since 1992 when the constitution 74th amendment act was was passed by parliament of india urban local bodies should have been empowered to handle public health holistically particularly primary healthcare i'd like to believe that if i had to capture the response to your question on why has decentralization been poor in the area of public health in particular but by and large across several other functions and powers i would just say political economy and what i mean by that is our political parties are centralized we first became a country then we created provinces or states and local self governments in their formal shape and form were a very late afterthought in the early 90s therefore there are historical reasons and the impulse for political decentralization from the state to the city has been quite weak that's a very interesting point and i wanted to uh, just go on a little bit on this issue of political economy uh, one is if healthcare is not actually something that's devolved properly to 
local governments, then what is the defined role of local governments in situations like this? Are they actually just required to support the state government and the central government, or do they actually have some independent powers and responsibilities of their own as well? Uh, the second is about the point you mentioned about just the nature of the way India's political system works. We've also seen in some other countries and from historical precedents that when cities actually become more powerful and become bigger engines of economic growth, they also start claiming more and more power within the political system. So why has that not happened? Why have cities actually not tried to claim more power in, as a political unit uh, within the Indian system? Okay, so to address your first question, Anirudh, I must confess that there will be regional variations. So whatever I'm going to respond now would be a broad generalization. And we must acknowledge that there would be exceptions, there would be regional variations. Across our 30-odd states, we have more than 4,500 urban local bodies, which are governed by dozens of different municipal acts. By and large, I would like to believe that municipalities in their current avatar are functioning as outsourced service providers of the state government. This may come across as a fairly strong statement because most of these urban local bodies or municipalities do have elected wings. There are elected councillors uh, at the ward level. And they do have a, an important function as the first mile elected representative of citizens in cities. Yet, because of poor overall autonomy across the three proverbial Fs of functions, funds, and functionaries, municipalities generally have descended to, to become outsourced service providers of sorts. Therefore, I'd like to believe that one way or other, it's the state government that is largely dominating pandemic response. And any municipal response is dovetailing within the state's response and drawing directions or inspiration from state-level directives. Yet, whatever the municipalities are doing currently is of huge significance. And we must acknowledge that they are doing it despite the challenges that they are facing, despite the challenges of not being empowered with functions, funds, and functionaries. And being the first mile connect to citizens, I think they are playing a very crucial role. And we must uh, thank and congratulate and express gratitude to all those first mile municipal functionaries at whatever grades they may be in. To your second question on cities extracting their their share of powers the way it has happened in other countries. I, I must confess, I've not studied the comparative models from the perspective that you're calling out. But I can say that in even in pure economies, ranging from Philippines, Indonesia, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, there the cities by design are much better empowered than their counterparts in India, constitutionally or statutorily. For example, cities in Brazil are entitled to a share of 
their equivalent of GST, whereas cities in India aren't, except in the case of Maharashtra, which has passed a specific legislation to that effect. Similarly, in South Africa, the conception of their new constitution, which came up in the post-apartheid era, does not envisage tiers of governance in a hierarchy, but envisages spheres of governance in terms of allocation of roles and responsibilities between the federal level, provincial level, and the municipal level. Whereas the conception is very, very different in India. Whether you look at the 74th Constitution Amendment or whether you look at the municipal acts. And therefore, even though you have very large cities like Mumbai, Bengaluru, Chennai, Kolkata, Hyderabad, etc., they are still subject to the political economy of the ruling party of the state, subject to the political economy of the relative power equations at the political executive level and at the administrative executive level. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, just to continue from where you, you left off, uh, so let's forget about well-functioning cities like Hong Kong, London, and so on. Even the some of the cities that you mentioned in countries like Brazil and South Africa, how does a decentralized system of governance actually look like when it's responding to a pandemic? What works better and how does that actually provide more flexibility, more autonomy, more resilience in terms of how cities cope with incidents like this? Are there any uh, uh, practices that you are seeing that are actually exemplifying some of this benefit of decentralization and local autonomy? I think that's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, given our preoccupation with the current circumstances in India, we've still not had a chance to look at that comparative aspect closely, Anirudh. But what I can definitely say is the way it looks when a municipality is empowered is the following. You have an empowered mayor and council, which means the political leadership of the city is directly accountable to citizens of the city. Unlike in India, where there is no single point of political accountability for the city as a place. That's one, that's one defining aspect, that is one distinguishing aspect. The second aspect is fiscal autonomy to match the functional autonomy. Because what, what do we mean by an empowered mayor and council? We essentially mean that they are empowered to make decisions and they have powers over various service delivery aspects and infrastructure of the city, which means they have power over planning, over transport, over water supply, over public health, and so on. However, those powers and functions or obligations to citizens need to be matched by their ability to raise resources, financial resources, to invest in infrastructure and civic service delivery. So the second defining aspect is several of these peer countries, peer cities have those financial powers, which are far more than their counterparts in India. The third aspect which I would call out because it is of salience in the Indian context, is powers over staffing. In India, municipalities are in a bizarre situation where they are subject to service rules or cadre and recruitment rules defined by the state, which are anachronistic, which do not factor in 21st century requirements of our cities, 
either in terms of number of people needed or in terms of skills and competencies or performance management, organization design, etc. Secondly, in except in rare exceptions, the commissioner of a city reports more meaningfully to a state-level bureaucrat or to a state-level minister than to the mayor or the council. There could be, again, exceptions to this. But by and large, the mayor of a city in India does not have powers over his or her own executive branch, the administrative executive branch. So these are the distinguishing features, and these would also be the benefits that India would reap by empowering our cities. Uh, thanks, Srikanth. I think these three or four points, they actually mean that I think municipalities are pretty toothless in terms of uh, delivering essential services in times like this. I just wanted to pursue this whole issue of financial powers a little bit more. Even in municipalities where uh, powers of taxation, for example, limited powers of taxation for property tax and so on, exam- uh, for example, have been given. Uh, for example, I think in Delhi, municipalities do have the powers to collect property taxes. We often see the issue of uh, the political interests lobbying to ensure that taxes are not increased. And that in turn then goes to the heart of this lack of financial capacity uh, that would actually be used to build essential services for times like this. So why is it that even in cases where some powers have been given to municipalities, they're actually not working the way they were envisaged to be? This is again a fantastic uh, question. And I'd respond to it by saying that the challenge of governing India's cities is is essentially a systems problem. And at Janagraha, we have a city systems framework both to diagnose these challenges and to identify pathways to solving them. And our experience leads us to believe that there are four city systems underlying quality of life in cities. And they are spatial planning and design, capacities and resources, comprising finances, staffing, technology. Thirdly, political leadership at the city level, and all of these circumscribed by the fourth city system of transparency, accountability, and citizen participation. So we believe these are the four city systems that are crucial to sustainable, irreversible transformation and quality of life in our cities. So if you apply this framework to the problem that you've called out, which is even within the remit of powers devolved to cities with respect to, say, property tax, why is it that results are not being delivered? The answers lie within each of these city systems. There's a linkage of property tax to governance of land and to building bylaws. There's a linkage of property taxation to to the degree of empowerment, which means in many cases, tax rates can be set by the council, but the underlying capital value on which such tax rate is applied is governed by the stamp duties and registration department of the state government. And clearly, the capital value has a greater bearing on property tax than the rate itself. Even the rate many times is range-bound by the Municipal Act. Similarly, there is no single property register for the city, which is updated real-time, which is available for 
different departments, whether it's water supply, property tax, trade licenses, power supply, stamp duties and registration charges, etc. So there is a problem of architecture itself. And then, then there are poor capacities within the municipal departments to be able to conceive and implement some of these sophisticated systems and processes. And there is also a lack of accountability, which means if you don't perform well in revenues, you're not, you don't have accountability frameworks that really create consequences, both for elected representatives and for bureaucrats. So the, the systems nature of the problem is what compounds this and results in the kind of phenomena that you're describing. Right. And what you're basically saying is that a lot of these underlying issues then come back and bite us really hard in situations like this when we have to grapple with uh, pandemics and we have to actually deliver essential services on a heightened scale. And that's what I just wanted to move towards and ask you from what you've seen of municipalities and urban bodies responding to the second wave so far. Uh, we've seen some relative success stories or strategies, but do you have any ideas on what is it that's actually making some municipalities respond more successfully than others? For example, we've read some reports on how Mumbai has been able to respond to the second wave relatively more successfully than Delhi. So what are some of the factors that have enabled some of these cities to be more successful than others? Is it some of these underlying systems issues that have been addressed much better in city governance in these states? Or is it something else? Is it about legal and financial powers? Is it about civic activism and engagement? What is the what is the mix that's actually contributing to this performance differential across cities? I would call out Kerala as a case in point, Anirudh. And I would say political empowerment and respect for the elected council and the elected mayor in a meaningful way not just in a statutory form-based manner, but in a substantial way, makes the difference. And when we spoke to senior bureaucrats who have served in the government of Kerala in the past, both in the urban and health departments, what we gathered that it has been a long journey. The process of maturation of decentralization and of decentralized primary health care has taken close to two decades and is still evolving. But a series of measures, including political decentralization, including fiscal autonomy, including giving powers to municipalities over staff, including put, putting together platforms where the municipality and civil society and experts engage together at the neighborhood level have really made the difference. Right. And I actually wanted to ask you about one of these platforms. Uh, over the last decade or couple of decades, we've seen this institution of residence welfare associations that have come up. And uh, by all accounts, they've played some kind of a significant role in helping the government cope with COVID-19. And they have helped interface with the local administration on behalf of residents and resident associations. And if they work well, they can potentially be an effective 
private tier of governance that complements the efforts of the government. So we've heard these stories of how RWS have actually worked well in some cases. They've been able to help the local government quite well. And then in some cases, we've heard of them imposing fairly draconian rules on their members, adopting extremely high-handed measures to control the transmission, especially early last year. So what's your opinion on how RWS have worked, how they were originally envisaged to have actually complemented urban governance, and whether there are actually aspects of their functioning that now we feel can be improved to cope with situations like COVID and other situations? I'd like to believe that a sense of community at the neighborhood level is certainly been a huge positive during the pandemic. Lack of state capacities, inability of the state to reach every citizen on every street in every city in India has meant that neighborhood level action, civic action, uh, out of civic mindedness has certainly fixed several gaps. Nothing can substitute the state, uh, but to whatever extent they could I think they have really played an important role, uh, both during the first wave and beginning to play that role in the second wave as well. However, I think the need is not for self-selected resident welfare associations, but for the equivalent of Gram Sabhas in cities. We have, across our 4,500 cities, we have approximately 87,000, close to 90,000 wards. And this is the basic, most basic unit of governance uh, in India cities, as envisaged in the 74th Constitution Amendment and as reflected in our municipal acts. However, we need to further deepen governance in our cities. A ward is still fairly large, spatially and demographically. What we need is polling booth level governance, which, which were called area sabhas under the Nagaraj bill which was a mandatory reform under JNNURM. And there are two features which distinguish area sabhas, and they were adapted as Mohalla sabhas in the Delhi context as an attempt a few years ago, which didn't fructify. There are two distinguishing factors between area sabhas and RWAs. One is that area sabhas are spatially defined entities, defined by the polling booth as a unit. Secondly, they are inclusive and they can eventually therefore become political, which means every citizen, irrespective of whether they belong to one RWA or other, irrespective of whether they live in gated communities or not, every registered voter automatically becomes a member of that area sabha, like is the case with a Gram sabha. And therefore, it makes it far more inclusive and lends itself to further deepening of political empowerment, which means you could have representatives for area sabhas who then participate in what committee meetings, you could have voting happening in area sabhas on resource allocation, on performance management, and so on. So even as resident welfare associations are playing an important role, even as we should create space for RWAs, apartment associations, various kinds of community organizations, to participate in urban governance, I don't think they can completely substitute for decentralized platforms of citizen participation, such as area sabhas or even ward committees. 
Right. That's really fascinating. Uh, this a- entire idea of a area sabha. Uh, I just wanted to ask you. Yes, it's completely true that the way you define an area sabha does sound much more inclusive. But then, doesn't it also make it more contentious to actually think about making the city as a whole more inclusive? Because then the pressure also increases on keeping people out and keeping your constituency intact. Right, so there are some pros and cons to the idea of an area sabha as well. Certainly, none of these are definitive solutions or models which can or should be applied across the board in a single uniform manner. It's important that decentralization is adapted to context at the state level, but more importantly, even at the city level. So, area sabhas is one way of looking at the problem and we've done work on it over the years and uh, it does require experimentation it does require strengthening as a concept in fact even implementing pilots and so on but we've not even made the first step of forming what committees in a meaningful manner and activating them so the larger point i'm trying to make is that we cannot rely on resident welfare associations or apartment associations which are self selected and which may not represent the entire spatial and demographic entity of the ward to serve as the citizen participation platform they should have representation they should be given space their their voice their voices must be heard and incorporated into ward level planning ward level resource allocation etc but we need to do more but i agree with you that doing more doesn't mean uh blanket solutions uniform solutions but it should be a phased gradual process which is thought through and done well no absolutely i completely agree with that and speaking of context specific solutions i also wanted to talk to you about some of the differences between governance mechanisms in large cities and tier 2 tier 3 cities so a lot of the uh, videos the harrowing images we are seeing about the fallout of the covid-19 right now is actually coming in from the larger cities but we are also now seeing the infection travel to rural parts to smaller cities and just see the scale of the damage there so i wanted to ask if what do you know or think about the capacity within local governance mechanisms in these cities because as you're pointing out even large cities sometimes don't have well formed governance institutions that are actually inclusive that are actually capable of delivering essential services so what are the key issues with regard to urban governance in some of the smaller cities a very interesting and important question i think the pattern of urbanization in india needs to be factored in more directly into urban governance what i mean by this is consider the pattern of urbanization for a moment there are eight cities which have a population of more than 4 million there are another close to 40 cities i'm using approximations close to 40 cities which have a population between 1 and 4 million there are another close to 50 cities which have a population between 500000 to a million so which makes it about 86 cities having a population of more than 500000 you have another close to 400 cities little less than 400 cities having a population of between 100000 to 500000 i mean 100000 to 
upwards of 100,000. So overall, you have 470 cities which have a population upwards of 100,000, of which 86 have a population upwards of 500,000, which essentially means you have a long tail of more than 4,000 cities which have a population less than 100,000. And these are all spatially spread. But there is a clustering pattern around larger urban settlements, which means if you treat each of these cities with a population of 100,000 or more as the center of a circle and draw a radius of 60 kilometers, assuming a travel speed of 60 kilometers an hour or at one hour of travel, then you're likely to cover 80% of the urban population in India is what our spatial analysis reveals. But yet India does not have a metropolitan governance model which looks at urban governance in a regional sense. To illustrate this better, take the case of Mumbai, where Mumbai is a city of more than 20 million people. And the, the Brihan Mumbai Municipal Corporation, which is the principal largest municipality of Mumbai, governs only 12 million of those people and governs an area little over 400 square kilometers. So Vasai Virar has a different municipal corporation. Thana has a different municipal corporation or a municipality. Ambarnath has a different one. Badlapur has a different one. So there is fragmentation in governance, spatially and otherwise. So this is one of the challenges. Secondly, smaller municipalities certainly have more acute capacity challenges. And therefore, I think their ability to cope with pandemics would certainly be much weaker. There would be rare exceptions. There would be rare exceptions in different parts of India, which may be by due to historical reasons or due to singular efforts of, of leaders or teams, but certainly not by design. So we have to look at urban governance in India through the lens of the size of these cities, of the clustering of population around these cities, and also projecting into the future the possible growth patterns and potential ways in which those may have to be influenced. For example, what is the influence that all the expressways that are coming up in, say, Maharashtra or in Uttar Pradesh going to have on the urbanization patterns? both current and future. Similarly, what is the impact of the several industrial corridors that are coming up going to have on existing and future urbanization patterns? Similarly, with dedicated freight corridors and so on, or even FDI, uh, uh, patterns in FDI investments. So these are factors which currently are not being looked at seriously enough, particularly at the state government level, but even to a certain extent at the, at the union level. That's a fascinating set of research questions. I think it's going to be a great boon for any researcher listening to this. And I've also been thinking about something similar, which is how do uh, things like globalization and the linkages of cities to other global markets actually affect urbanization patterns? What does it mean when Bangalore becomes uh, IT hubs catering to the rest of the world? Right? What does it do to the pattern of urbanization in, in the city of Bangalore? Uh, but that's that's really fascinating. Uh, my last question is really about uh, where do we go forward from here? And you've mentioned a lot of the gaping problems in urban governance. And 
a lot of other proponents of strengthening strengthening urban governance have also argued in favor of greater financial powers to local bodies like municipalities including their powers to raise and collect taxes and so on they've also pointed to the need for building greater capacity within local bodies and for delivering on infrastructure so this pandemic has really exposed the frailty of our local governance systems in a in a terrible way uh, but like i said at the beginning pandemics have also historically been inflection points for urban governance in india so which pre-existing issues do you think this pandemic has really brought forward in a way that we can now say needs a immediate and speedy resolution and do you think we actually have the political will to do something about these issues that's a great question let me hazard a uh guesstimate let me do some crystal ball gazing in response i anticipate that there could be political leadership that pushes for decentralization of primary healthcare that strengthens primary healthcare systems post emergency response to the pandemic that could happen at least in a few states while i would hope that it happens to a far greater extent across india i do expect at least a few states to take leadership in strengthening their primary healthcare systems and for political leadership to back those initiatives i also believe that there could be greater recognition at the union level for greater degrees of involvement of urban local bodies and also panchayati raj institutions in in the delivery of healthcare and incentivizing that through their central schemes and missions like what the 15th finance commission has done setting aside 70000 crores for local self governments particularly for primary healthcare however whether the deeper problem of empowerment of city councils will be addressed politically is a big question i don't see any indications at least from what we see around us in the press etc of any enlightened political realization that empowerment of city councils empowerment of mayors is what is needed for us to confront future challenges if not of the same scale of the pandemic but of similar seriousness it could be climate effects it could be water and sanitation challenges it could be public safety and so on i don't see any political realization arising if anything there has been a tendency to rely more on centralized systems rely more on technology rely more on a few good officers or a few good political leaders rather than strengthening systems but one could one could understand that because emergency response requires an emergency response you don't have the luxury of fixing systems but what we need is a change in the narrative what we need is a two track approach where there is convergence among civil society academia and business to work on strengthening state capacities in general but more particularly in urban governance but at the same time influencing political economy towards greater decentralization greater empowerment of city councils and i think the proof of this pudding is in philanthropists business leaders civil society leaders academia coming together and seeking to engage with state governments in a single voice 
demanding greater decentralization in a phased manner. That would really be the proof of the pudding. But what I would be happy seeing is a systematic way in which multiple stakeholders from outside of the government engage with the government in strengthening capacities, but at the same time also influence political economy towards greater empowerment of mayors and councils, greater decentralization of governance to the city and within cities. That's both pragmatic and cautiously optimistic and probably the right note to end this conversation in these tough times. Thank you for talking to me and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Anirudh. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.